Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 51 for the second half of September 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the fake story of Planet X, part 4, the ideas of Nancy Leader. Nancy Leader claimed between the years of 1995 and up through May of 2003 that a Planet X would come and cause a geographic pole flip, leaving billions dead and significant land masses submerged, and this would all happen well before the end of 2003. Obviously, it didn't. Nancy later went through a few different post-talk ways of explaining it that I'll go through as we explore in this episode. Now, I also, before we really get started, want to add a little bit of a personal note to this episode. This topic of Nancy Leader and Planet X was really my first introduction to Coast to Coast AM. It was the first time I had ever really heard Phil Plate's voice, and it was one of my first real exposures to pseudoscience. I was following some of Phil Plate's work at the time, leading up to 2003, and was more interested in his forums and talking with other people about astronomy, since that was my major in college at the time. Then, Phil posted that he would be debating Nancy Live, on air, on this strange radio show called Coast to Coast AM, and that he would be doing this on May 13th, 2003. I listened in live. This podcast episode is a bit of a full circle thing for me. And now... Before we actually really get into the case, I also want to point out two things that this episode is not. First, it is not meant to make any conclusions nor statements about the mental health of Nancy Leader, nor whether she really believes what she says or not. I'm presenting what she stated compared with what the observable, independent facts show. Namely, Planet X didn't cause anything in 2003. To that end, this is not a clip show of her faulty astronomy. That'll be a whole, probably, two or three hour episode, or at least there's enough for two or three hour episode in and of itself in maybe a few months. There's a lot that she does not understand, and apparently the aliens that she channels don't understand either. But as I said, that's another episode. This one is just on her claims regarding Planet X. That said, as the first of possibly many episodes about Nancy Leader, it's important to really talk about the person making the specific claim and to give some context and talk a little bit about Nancy Leader herself. Her bio, that's usually read on Coast to Coast, and yes, don't worry, there will be several clips coming, is that she was a computer professional and an enhanced UFO contactee. Nancy claims that her soul agreed before incarnating into Nancy, and she does frequently refer to herself in the third person, that she would be a conduit for extraterrestrial communications in this lifetime. But she didn't know about this until her 50s. She describes herself as a sleeper unit until that time. But she does say that she was enhanced in her 20s during surgery, when a group of aliens from the many planets of the Zeta Reticuli star system implanted a little bit of their DNA into the telepathic regions of Nancy's brain. At that point... She still didn't know that she was a sleeper agent, but she immediately noticed an increase in her telepathic abilities. These manifest in things commonly referred to by people such as Rupert Sheldrake as telephone telepathy, where you know who's calling before you pick up the phone. I happen to know who's calling me because I have caller ID, although maybe she didn't have that in the 1970s. Now, according to the bio on her own website, 
Nancy came into her own in 1993, discovering that she was a contactee and communicator with the Zetas, for short. She met one of her hybrid alien children, and she eventually left her husband and job and went into the country to speak her truth from the Zetas. She started the Zeta Talk website in 1995, early on in the internet era when I happened to be in sixth grade. She was very active in news groups and the old alt.astronomy groups on the internet, and Wikipedia actually credits her with that year being the first one to introduce the idea of a cataclysm from a rogue planet X, or Nibiru. Meanwhile, Rational Wiki describes Zeta Talk as an apocalyptic alien contactee cult started by free-range nutbar Nancy Leader for whatever that's worth. Now, as a side note, I do like Rational Wiki, but I think it does itself a disservice when people choose to use that particular kind of language. Moving on with this lengthy bio, of which we're almost halfway through, Nancy says that she is not a medium, nor is she a channeler, though she does say that she channels the Zetas, but they don't actually take over her body like a lot of channelers say what their channeling does. She describes her interaction as though they are holding up flashcards, and she's reading off of them when she's speaking for them. When doing this type of channeling, she'll start by usually saying something to the effect of, this is the Zetas on that, or start of Zeta talk, then go into whatever she was going to say as the Zetas, and then she'll end with something like, and that's the end of Zeta talk. She's very good at branding. Her description of how she says she channels is actually quite ingenious in my own personal opinion. Because she has to communicate questions to the Zetas, and they have to prompt her with concepts that she puts into words back to us, she says that if she forgets the question, or doesn't understand it, then she can't relay it to the Zetas. So if I, for example, were to ask the Zetas, or ask her to ask the Zetas to explain quantum chromodynamics to see if they really are advanced aliens, then she wouldn't do it, because she doesn't understand it, and therefore she can't relay it to the Zetas. This is also her excuse for when things that she says are factually wrong. She claims that since the Zetas aren't giving her exact English words to say, that if she has the wrong impression in her head about something, they can't get their message through. To quote Nancy, she says, quote, I am a true translator. You know, I'm a participant. If I have something in my head that's wrong, they have a hard time getting their concepts through that veil. So sometimes I will stumble. If I don't understand the topic, if I'm not on the same page, and I don't have a background in it, I can, I can really bloop, end quote. This also accounts for her word choice slips when channeling, sometimes reusing the word I instead of we when she's supposed to be talking for the Zetas. Otherwise, like other channelers, even though she says she isn't one, she does try to slip into a slightly different word pattern when channeling, generally just speaking faster, but putting in a lot of ums and uhs because she can't quite keep up with herself. So that's the background on Nancy, and with that in mind, we can look into her claims of a 2003 apocalypse. Perhaps the most obvious statement is that, obviously, and quite demonstrably, what she said would happen in 2003 did not happen. So I could end the podcast right now, and I probably should because I have a bunch of work to do, but I think it's informative to go further and you'll be able to see parallels with it and the 2012 stuff that we're going through right now. 
Now, by way of a deadline, before 2003, Nancy said that Planet X would cause a pole flip in 2003 and lots of bad stuff would happen. The deadline was in the weeks surrounding May 15th, with the closest approach of May 27th, 2003. Leading up to the event, Nancy borrowed several other mythologies upon which to build her own. One was that of Zechariah Sitchin, whom I discussed in episode 23, and who is generally credited with the 3,600-year orbiting Planet X with Anunnaki aliens who came to Earth to mine gold. Nancy adopts both the aliens who live on Planet X as well as the 3,600-year orbiting planet, although she says it's actually 3,657 years in order to make one orbit. Another mythology that she goes along with is that of Velikovsky, whom I talked about in episode 46. From Velikovsky's ideas of great cataclysms in the past being due to the planet Venus, Nancy took upon the idea that Planet X would actually cause a lot of the cataclysms on Earth as it got close, as opposed to a planet Venus. She also went to the Bible, claiming that Moses actually described plagues in Egypt that lasted for seven years, and that these were seven years leading up to the arrival of Planet X, which happened last during the Exodus talked about in the Old Testament of the Judeo-Christian Bible. So, from all of these ideas, Nancy put together a somewhat cohesive story that took a lot of aspects from the fringe, but ideas that were popular with anti-science mentality that we still see today. She also put them out there when people believed that everything on the internet was believable. Now keep in mind that this was also during the early days of the internet. I'm not bringing that up for the context of Nancy, but to emphasize that this was a time of a communication revolution, the dawn of the information age, as some people would term it. News could spread much, much faster than it could before, and because of that, any news of things like volcanoes, weird weather, or earthquakes was made available to a worldwide audience much faster than ever before possible. This is why many people will say that since the 90s, there's been a rise in earthquakes and what many have termed earth changes. Rather, if they actually look at the statistics of numbers of events and the magnitude or severity of the events, they would see that there has been no increase since the 1990s. It was just that starting in the 90s, the local news in Iowa and the U.S. could simply actually say, today a 4.2 magnitude earthquake happened in Pearsat, Cambodia. Fifty years earlier, that information would have taken weeks to reach Iowa, and no one in Iowa would have cared. Now, I can already see that some people are going to say, but actually, if you do look at the data since the 90s, there has been an increase. Note that it's an increase in cost of damage due to these events, and an increase in loss of life. There hasn't actually been an increase in the number and severity, energy-wise, of the events. That information is then most consistent with the hypothesis that the increase in dollar figures, or euros or yens or whatever figures for the amount of damage and loss of life, is simply due to the spread of human population and inflation, rather than the actual increase of the number of events, which hasn't happened. Now, of course, this does lead into where I'm going with Nancy. She claimed that it was starting in 1995, when she happened to start Zeta Talk, and about seven years before, May 2003, that Earth changes started to happen with increasing frequency. With news of more minor events being much more readily available, this grew her following. Moving forward in November of 2002, she went on Coast to Coast AM and stated that Planet X would, quote, 
be visible in the daylight sky six to seven weeks before passage. End quote. She was next on Coast to Coast on April 25, 2003, and when George Norrie, the host, reiterated that statement, Nancy changed it, and she said that it'll be a sure thing that it'll be visible during daylight when it'll come up as a second sun, but that will only happen a week before passage, and that it would definitely be before June 1st. Nancy also pointed to several images that people sent her, saying that she's of course seen it many times, but that it's also visible in images taken by NASA and by other people who sent them to her. What she actually pointed to was image noise and hot pixels, something pointed out by Phil Plate, and things that I discussed in my two-part episode on image processing, episodes 47 and 48. Anyway, I could go on to more statements that she made, but there are really only two more in the April interview that I want to make. First, she said that personally for her, there's a 0% chance that it won't happen. Second is this clip. I'm sticking to my story, George. Now that, of course, did make things a little bit hard for Nancy when nothing happened in May, nor June, nor July, August, September, October, November, or December of 2003. She wasn't on coast for two years, and when she was on again in the night of August 9th, 2005, she complained that she felt that she was booted from coast, but the popularity of her website was growing. George, for once, got right to the point and said that Nancy made the prediction, it didn't happen, so what happened? This is a bit of a long clip, but I think that it's important to play the full three minutes to demonstrate what she said. If you don't want to listen to Nancy, fast forward by 2 minutes and 52 seconds. Yeah, actually it showed up. It just didn't pass over our head. It has a sling orbit. It actually goes past two different suns. Our sun is a binary, but our binary is a dark, unlit sun. So therefore, we really can't see it. According to the Zetas, it's 18.74 sun-Pluto distances out into space in the direction of Orion. And, and when everything coalesced coming out of the Big Bang, this planet did not go round and round one sun. It started slinging past, and then both gravity forces were behind it, so it slung back again. Whoops, now both gravity. So like a pendulum, back and forth. Uh, past these two suns, and it slings to our through our solar system every 3,657 years, very close to Zechariah Sitchin's ancient Sumerian uh, interpretations, 3,600, the Shar. Well, the last time it came through was the Jewish Exodus period, when there was all this red blood in the rivers, and we did, in fact, have a shift in our axis, according to Potsdam University in uh, Germany at that time. So we're due. Well, there's there's nothing in human astrophysics that explains this uh, sling orbit, and and that's not because um, our astrophysics are are dumb. It's because we're relatively naive and inexperienced. But it it when it comes through, it dives straight for the sun. But there's a gravity repulsion force, which is according to the Zetas, why the moon stays up there. It's way too heavy and moving too slowly not to be dropping to Earth. It's not centrifugal force that keeps our moon up there. Actually, the reason this is a stealth planet, and and if you look in ancient documents like the Colbrun, it states that when it does make its passage and roar over our head, causing a pole shift because it's a huge magnet, much bigger than we, it comes from the sun, from the direction of the sun, and hides the face of the sun as it makes its passage. Um, 
this, this is because it's shrouded by such a dust cloud, huge red dust, iron oxide dust, that it's like a fuzzball in a fog bank. That's what we're looking at right now. When it was coming in in 2003, it was behind the sun to us, and light reflected off that fuzzball and bounced back to us, and that was the season of the second sun, when many people saw two suns rising and setting during the summer of 2003. It's now so close to the sun that when we look at the sun, we see a fuzzball with light reflected back to the sun, but it's the reason for all the earthquakes, the weather anomalies, the increasing volcanism, the melting from the bottom up of the earth of the permafrost and the glaciers and the like. It's because of Planet X. Two things can be noticed immediately from that clip. First, she never really directly answered the question. Second, her knowledge of astronomy and physics is atrocious, but as I said, that's a different episode. Now, for those of you who had trouble parsing it, or who skipped to this part of the episode, basically Nancy said that Planet X did show up, but you just couldn't see it, because it was behind the sun, as opposed to a close pass by Earth, despite what she said in 2003. And it's still there in 2005, just sort of peeking out from behind the sun, but it's just hard to see. But you can see its effects with all of the Earth changes that are happening. Now fast forward to 2007, two years later, and four years after the non-event, Nancy was on again. This time, she had a different explanation. The Zetas told a white lie. It creeps past the sun very slowly, uh, but now it's on its outward bound path, um, and we can't get, we're like deer in the headlights. We can't get out of the way. So they did this false state. Was I devastated? You betcha. I mean, I just didn't know. I was like catatonic for a week or so, just went on long walks in the woods. And, and, uh, but then when they came out and explained what they had done, and I was explaining to people, uh, the fan club just kept coming in and asking for clarification. In the meantime now, Zeta predictions, one after the other, have come true. Why did the Zetas tell this white lie, you might ask? Well, it's because they really don't like our politics, and they really don't like George W. Bush. According to Nancy in 2007, they did it because Planet X really is coming, or did come, and George W. Bush, then President of the United States, knew all about it. But Bush and everyone else didn't know exactly when it would happen, and so they were all following Nancy's Zeta Talk stuff, and so this was all a ploy to bring them out of the woodwork and make them, quote, fall on their swords. That by scrambling to make preparations for Planet X's arrival based on what Nancy said, they would reveal their hands. And that because of their betrayal at that time in 2007, Bush had lost all control. That Bush had secretly ordered martial law in the United States, an invasion of Iran. But since 2003, the military simply was disobeying orders, and they didn't consider Bush to be their commander-in-chief. And that because of this... Soldiers were secretly leaving Iraq and coming home. The host, George, had evolved by 2007 and didn't challenge her on that statement, but a caller came in later on and called her an utter and complete fraud. Four years later, in 2011, Nancy changed her tune again. Not that she made everything up. No, Planet X was still there. It has 23 times the mass, four times the diameter of Jupiter, 
it has oceans and a few land masses, although it was termed by Nancy to be a brown dwarf. If you're a fan of Stargate Atlantis, think of Lantea or Lantea. That's sort of the picture she's giving. But it also has 50% more gravity than Earth, and so creatures are 50% larger. And the men from Planet X are hunks, according to Nancy. Planet X was on the other side of the sun in 2003, according to her. The reason for all of the second sun sightings on YouTube is that dust surrounding Planet X was bouncing light off of our sun and reflecting it towards us. Now, in 2011, last year, the situation is different, and it's between us and the sun, and we really can't see it very well except in special photos, verified only by Nancy, but not really recognized for what they are by the people who take the photos. Oh, and Planet X has stopped Earth in its orbit, according to Nancy. It's holding us like in the arms of a grizzly bear, due to disturbing particle flows from the sun. As to why stars continue to move from one night to the next, which is only really possible if Earth is moving through space, well, Nancy didn't provide information on that. The Zetas aren't actually allowed to tell us specific dates of when Planet X will come, according to Nancy. So, they had told her a white lie back in 1995 and through 2003, but she made no mention of George W. Bush falling on his sword, and she also made no mention of the military ignoring their commander-in-chief. Instead, it was the so-called power elite that would fall on their swords, that Nancy's information would force the wealthy and those in power to, quote, show their hands. Now, there's a lot more to what happened, but those are the basic claims, the basic facts surrounding the case. The rude idea of Planet X coming by and doing bad stuff, causing a pole flip, it didn't happen in 2003. Leading up to this event, about a week before it, Nancy came on another radio show, and she told listeners to kill their pets in anticipation of what was going to happen. When asked if she had killed her own pets, she replied that she had, and quote, The puppies are in a happy place, end quote. She also advised, quote, A dog makes a good meal, end quote. We see the same thing happening now, in the few months leading up to December 21st, 2012, which Nancy actually says will be a non-event because the calendar correlations are not necessarily correct. At least she learned her lesson of not making specific dates as deadlines anymore. But getting back to it, as I said, we see the same thing happening now, the same basic idea of Planet X coming by, doing bad stuff. It's transposed just nine years later to the 2012 phenomenon. People are pointing to the exact same lines of faulty evidence. A supposed increase in earthquakes that isn't actually happening. An increase in volcanoes that isn't actually happening. A second sun in photos that are just lens flares, reflections, hoaxes, and other things, and so on. And yet, the same idea that if there were a large planet-like or star-like object nearby, astronomers would have seen it years ahead of time, and there would be no way to keep it a secret. At the time of this recording, three months before December 2012, it would be the brightest object in the sky, besides the sun and probably besides the moon. You can't really hide that. This is what was wrong in 2003, and it's wrong in 2012. And now, just like then, people who believe those who spread this kind of fear are afraid themselves, and some are quitting their jobs, 
Some are moving to where gurus say will be safe places. They're divorcing their spouses, they're leaving their children, they're killing their pets and other things. I only hope that there aren't any cult-like mass suicides like there were with Comet hale in 1997 in the few days before and after December 21st of 2012. There's no new news this episode, and there isn't a Q&A either. But if you'd like to submit a question for consideration for Q&A, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest really is just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. Now, a quick note about feedback. I've gotten a lot of emails over the last few weeks, and as usual, I'm behind on them. Hopefully things will start to settle down in about two or three weeks and I'll start responding. That said, I've gotten a few corrections based on different data sets relating to the last episode, the lunatic earthquakes. These corrections come from Matt T., who also happened to mention that Birkeland's specific prediction for the World Series quake was that it would be a 3.5 to 6.0 magnitude quake in the San Francisco Bay area. The earthquake was actually a 6.9, so technically Birkeland actually missed what he's most known for. Anyway... Using a slightly different source for data, USGS, as opposed to the Southern California Earthquake Data Service, Birkeland actually had a 52% chance of getting the prediction correct for San Jose, and a 75% chance for Los Angeles, a little bit higher than the chances that I had given him. So his hits were actually even more likely to be true. Now, also as a bit of breaking news, David Naban, the guy one of the two guys of whom I talked about last episode, happened to just leave a comment on the website for this episode on a comment form. Because it was written while I was actually recording this episode, I haven't had time to parse through it yet. If you'd like to read it, go up to the website, show notes for episode 50, and I should be commenting on it during the next episode, as long as that episode isn't an interview. More on that later. I also have a little bit of feedback related to the episode before that one, episode 49, on the asteroid Apophis supposed predictions of Billy Meyer. Now, the blog post for the episode now has well over 100 comments. If any of you have time to kill that you would never like to get back, take a look at the interaction between Michael Horn and Nereid. Basically, another poster by the name of Mahagatam, possibly that's the correct pronunciation, was stating that he had done some of the work to show the veracity of the Meyer case, but that he accepted that several lines of evidence were not very good, including the Apophis one. Nereid decided to look at several of Michael Horn's astronomy claims that Michael claimed were specific predictions and clearly showed that information was not known by Meyer before its official discovery or that the information was not known to the scientists, but Meyer somehow channeled it from his Plejaren friends before it was officially announced by scientists. Nereid so far has shown that in five of those cases, zero of them are actually valid. Michael hasn't responded, but keeps returning to the idea, but the case as a whole is valid. I've actually started to block Michael Horn because I specifically said on the post that Michael needed to specifically respond to Nereid's comments before he could continue on. Otherwise, they're just talking past each other and nothing is going to happen. 
I think that Parrot's reaction on the SGU message boards is a pretty good one. He says, quote, It really is nuts that people will argue that you should ignore the facts and look at the big picture. If the big picture is made up entirely of faulty facts, what good is it? I think that he should probably submit that to the SGU quote of the episode queue, but that's just me. Anyway, with that said, it's time for The Puzzler, where each episode I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely upon the material discussed in the main segment. There were two puzzlers last time in episode 50. The first was, while the moon causes tides on Earth, there will also be tides on the moon. When are tides largest on the moon? Same time they're largest on Earth, or at a different time? And why? Congratulations to Jan S. for being the first to send in a correct response. The solution is that yes, Earth causes tides on the moon, but because the same face is towards Earth, the high tide stays roughly in the same spot. Since the moon wobbles in its orbit, it moves around a little bit, and since the moon changes distance to Earth, the height changes as well. But there is still a tidal effect, and this can be realized with simply Newton's third law. When a body exerts a force on another body, the second body exerts an equal but opposite force on the first. The second puzzler was, we don't think that Mars has any plate tectonics. Would it experience quakes, and if so, what would cause them? Jan wrote in for that one too, and suggested that a large enough impact on Mars would be seismologically detectable and cause a quake, which is correct. David S. also wrote in, and he corrected me, saying that they would be called Mars quakes, not earthquakes. Except that I listened to the episode again, and I did specifically say quakes, not earthquakes, so the correction is unwarranted. And because of that, David's answer for the puzzler solution was wrong. So there. Well, not because of that, but in actuality, as I said, Jan was right. An impact would cause a quake. A landslide would cause a quake. Not present day, but in the past, Mars also has had active volcanism, and those two would have caused quakes. These quakes would technically be called Mars quakes, but generically they can be referred to simply for short as quakes. You can still have a quake even without plate tectonics. Basically, anything that makes the crust vibrate will cause that vibration, by definition. And that vibration is technically a quake. When I was an undergraduate, we created artificial earthquakes by taking a metal pipe or a metal cylinder, driving it into the ground, putting up a sensor, and just simply hitting that piece of metal. It caused vibrations, and we had earthquakes. We had to wait until classes were over with because people's footsteps would cause the detection equipment to go off. That's technically an earthquake. The energy is just really, 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 really small. This episode, with the main segment being on Nancy Leader's Planet X, the puzzler deals with her concept of Planet X. Nancy claimed that it's 23 times the size, so we'll assume diameter, of Jupiter. She also claims that it's four times the mass of Jupiter. She also said that its gravity is 50% more than Earth's. We'll assume that she means surface gravity, and that it is a water world with just a few small land masses. Is what she said plausible based upon what we know from basic physics? Try to figure out the answer and send it in to puzzler at sgrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next episode. And I'm not entirely 100% sure what exactly that next episode will be, but the next three or so 
will be about lunar formation ideas through the years, an interview with an astrobiologist about extraterrestrial life, and the alleged mystery surrounding Russia's Phobos II mission. If anyone has ideas for puzzlers for any of those, please do send them in. And, as a nice segue to the announcements, with my interview with an astrobiologist, if any of you have suggestions for questions hopefully related to some aspect of bad astronomy or pseudo-astronomy or misconceptions relating to astrobiology that you would like me to ask, please go ahead and send them in. Now, another announcement is for those of you who have been, or were, following the whole lunar ziggurat saga. I fear that it is not yet actually over, as Mike has announced that he will be on Coast to Coast AM on the night of Monday, September 24th, this year. The schedule for Coast to Coast that far in advance hasn't actually been posted, so I can't independently confirm this, although in the event that he is on Coast to Coast, I do plan on calling in. If that actually happens, and if I actually get through, a very small chance, I'll of course make an update on the blog and likely a mention on the following podcast. Now also, don't forget that you can find me online at podcast.sgrdesign.net, on Facebook under Exposing Pseudo Astronomy, or me personally on Twitter as Dr. That's D-R, Astro Stew, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudo Astro. That wraps up this topic for the 51st edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little or a lot at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use, one, the feedback form on the website, two, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, three, leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, Four, leave a comment on the blog post for the episode. Five, leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. Or six, send me a tweet at pseudoastro. I may be behind, but I do read every email, message, and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this on iTunes. If you like it, tell friends and family. <laughs>